Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. Today, we follow in our yearly tradition of taking a little time out and looking back, not at the previous year, and not as many have been doing, taking a broad uh, look back at the past decade, but as we do every year, take a specific, hard, and detailed look at one specific year 10 years past. Now, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, we can understand the year 10 years ago much better than we could have at the time, and it helps us understand how we got to where we are today. So we're looking at 2010 today. Barack Obama has been president for about a year at this point, and of course, there are plenty of issues that are specific to his administration, but of course, we're still dealing with the hangover of the previous decade, which was dominated by our foreign adventures in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. So that is where we'll start. President Obama was in Afghanistan not too long ago, as you know, and he attempted to state the purpose of our war there to our troops. Our broad mission is clear. We are going to disrupt and dismantle defeat and destroy al-Qaeda and its extremist allies. That is our mission. And to accomplish that goal, our objectives here in Afghanistan are also clear. We're going to deny al-Qaeda safe haven. We're going to reverse the Taliban's momentum. We're going to strengthen the capacity of Afghan security forces and the Afghan government so that they can begin taking responsibility and gain confidence of the Afghan people. That sounds to me like a traditional, classical military assignment to find the enemy and defeat him. Well, but there's also then the reference to uh, sort of building the capacity of the of the Afghan government. And that's where, of course, the president, he just come from this meeting with President Karzai. Basically, as we understand from press reports, the, the president sort of administered a tongue lashing to uh, Karzai to tell him to get his act together which then was followed by Karzai issuing his own tongue-lashing, uh, calling into question uh, whether or not he actually was committed to supporting the United States uh, in its efforts in Afghanistan. And again, this kind of does bring us back, in a way, uh, to Vietnam, where we found ourselves harnessed to uh, allies, uh, partners, uh, that turned out to be uh, either... Uh, incompetent uh, or corrupt or simply did not share our understanding of what needed to be done for that country. What does it say to you as a soldier that our our political leaders time and again send men and women to fight for in behalf of corrupt guys like Karzai? Well, we don't learn from history. Uh, And There is this persistent and I think almost inexplicable belief that the use of military force in some godforsaken country on the far side of the planet will not only yield some kind of purposeful result, but by extension will produce significant benefits for the for the United States. I mean, the, 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 I think that 
one of the obvious things about the Afghanistan war that is so striking and and yet so frequently overlooked is that we're now in the ninth year of this war. It is the longest war in American history, and it is a war for which there is no end in sight. And to my mind, it is a war that is utterly devoid of strategic purpose. And the fact that that gets so little attention from our political leaders, from the press, or from our fellow citizens, I think is simply appalling, especially when you consider the amount of money we're spending over there and the lives that are being lost, whether American or Afghan. So it's good to remember that 10 years ago, the Afghanistan war was already the United States' longest ever war and we already knew that it was nonsense. Now, parallel to that issue, WikiLeaks is playing a much different role 10 years ago than liberals and progressives tend to think of them these days. Congrats to WikiLeaks for releasing all those 92,000 documents on the Afghan war. It's the biggest peak into U.S. military operations since Daniel Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers back in the Vietnam War. And like the Pentagon Papers, these new documents show the U.S. war effort to be much less rosy than the White House has portrayed it. For one thing, the Taliban have successfully used surface-to-air missiles to bring down U.S. helicopters, the documents reveal. But most telling of all is the confirmation in great detail of the links between the Pakistani intelligence service and the Taliban. According to the WikiLeaks documents, the ISI not only meets with the Taliban, it advises the Taliban on who to attack in Afghanistan. An ISI member is reported to be planting bombs in Kabul, and a former director of the ISI is reported in the documents to be meeting repeatedly with Taliban leaders. This is nuts. The U.S. is giving the government of Pakistan a billion dollars a year in aid, and that country's intelligence agency is turning around and advising the Taliban on how to wage war against U.S. forces in Afghanistan? No wonder the war is going so badly. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Related to WikiLeaks, of course, is the case of Chelsea Manning, then known as Bradley Manning, who leaked military information to WikiLeaks, including the infamous collateral murder video showing American military killing civilians in Iraq, including uh, journalists. Chelsea Manning was arrested in May 2010 and was in prison for the remainder of Barack Obama's presidency until the the very waning days in January 2017 when Barack Obama commuted Chelsea Manning's sentence. Good evening from New York um, and good morning, Baghdad. It is already tomorrow in Iraq, which means that it is the end of America's Iraq war, which started there seven and a half years ago for this reason. We know that Iraq and al-Qaeda have had high-level contacts that go back a decade. We've learned that Iraq has trained al-Qaeda members in bomb-making, in poisons, and deadly gases. Iraq has sent bomb-making and document forgery experts to work with al-Qaeda. Iraq has also provided al-Qaeda with chemical and biological weapons training. 
He's a threat because he is dealing with al Qaeda. Iraq was linked to al Qaeda and therefore to 9-11 and therefore we had to invade Iraq. None of that was true. The war was started under the pretense that Iraq had some connection to 9-11 and al Qaeda, which it didn't. Or that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, which they didn't. Or that we were going to somehow democratize the Middle East by invading Iraq, which we didn't. Who knows? Maybe it really was all about stopping fraud in the U.N. oil for food program. I don't know. The surge strategy employed in 2007 in Iraq was about creating the political breathing space necessary for a political settlement in Iraq. That also has not happened. And yet the critics of President Obama today say that they want credit. They want credit for all that's transpired in Iraq in this war. Former Bush administration officials Paul Wolfowitz and John Bolton remarkably turned up in the op-ed pages today to make new suggestions about what they think should happen in Iraq since, you know, their old advice was so spot on. Republicans arguing today that George W. Bush deserved to be thanked by name by President Obama tonight. Republicans are clamoring for credit here as this war finally ends. Well, credit where credit is due. Two American things have been accomplished in Iraq. Tens of thousands, more than a million Americans, served their country in a horrible war for seven and a half years under horrible circumstances and under political leadership that was not honest about why they had been sent there. Those Americans are to be honored for what they did and what they gave, and they are to be taken care of as veterans now that they're home. The other accomplishment in Iraq is that we have finally found a way to leave, to get combat troops out now. Those two accomplishments belong to this president who is overseeing the withdrawal from Iraq and to the people who served, the people who served honorably for these seven and a half long years. Credit for all the rest of it, for the made-up reasons for going in, for going in in the first place, for letting Afghanistan spill out of control in favor of this war, for the constant revision of the justifications for war to obfuscate the craven, petty radicalism that really started it. Republicans, you guys can go right ahead and take that credit. Go right ahead. Credit where credit is due. It's always good to remember that that last day of the Iraq War, after which we never had to think about Iraq ever again. Joking, obviously, but speaking of hangovers from the previous decade, it's not just the wars themselves, but also the policies that surrounded the wars and the Bush administration policy on torture and how the Obama administration handled the transition of that policy is, I think, one of the most pivotal moments in the early years of the Obama administration, and it's where we get the very specific criticism of Obama's decision to look forward but not backward. Criticized because you can't actually fix the problems of the past without looking backward, and, and this desire to immediately forgive whatever just happened and try to move forward, maybe even in a, in a different direction, may be well-meaning but is ultimately dramatically flawed. And this is what America does over and over again. We simply do not do truth and reconciliation processes. And so the country becomes ever more split on everything from the conclusion of the Civil War to the pardoning of Richard Nixon to our policy on torture. The Office of Professional Responsibility in the Justice Department is tasked with the the job of figuring out who is you know, following the laws within the Justice Department, who's following the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. They're the ones that keep an eye out to make sure the Justice Department is actually following the law, right? So they had an investigation of the infamous torture memos during the Bush administration, mainly written by Jay Bybee and John Yu. And they wanted to see if 
they the people who wrote these memos were following internal Justice Department guidelines and were following the law itself. Right? And they came to a conclusion that they had not, that they had done professional misconduct. They basically, in order to appease the policy uh, people over at the White House, namely Dick Cheney, his uh, top lawyer, David Addington, etc., uh, wrote opinions that uh, now the Office of Professional Responsibility think uh, were not justified by the law at all. So that they should be brought up, not in a criminal trial, but brought to the bar to have them explain how in the world did you come up with these opinions inside the Justice Department saying it was okay to torture when it seems so absolutely and clearly against the laws of this country. And to give you a sense of how egregious John Yu was, the Office of Professional Responsibility, in the middle of the investigation, invited him in to ask him questions, and he came in and answered. And they asked him, hey, um, let me ask you a wild hypothetical. Quote, what about ordering a village of resistance to be massacred? Is that a power that the president could legally have? Now, they're asking this because John Yu wrote memos saying the president has the power to do anything, anything. He can torture people, he can ignore Congress's laws. As long as we're in a time of war, and we are always at war with terrorism, the president is above the law, basically. Now, that's unjustifiable in our system, according to our laws and according to our Constitution. That's why they think this is professional misconduct. But they're giving him an opportunity here. Could the president order a massacring of civilians? Here's John Yu's answer. Yeah. Although, let me say this, so, so certainly that would fall within the commander of chief's power over tactical decisions. Not unclear. Yes, it falls within his tactical decision power making. If he'd like to massacre civilians, perfectly uh, capable of doing that, and that would be perfectly legal. And the investigator is shocked. He can't believe it. He asks, to order a village of civilians to be exterminated? Use answer, sure. He didn't stutter. So, now, this is obviously against the law. It's not even taking U.S. law into consideration at all. It's just John Yu's opinion that, yeah, the president can do any damn thing he likes. He can murder anyone he likes. It's crazy, right? So why am I angry at the Obama administration? Well, they sent in a hack. Uh, what, in the terms of the Washington media, they call him a, a career veteran. His name is David Margolis. He takes the conclusions of the Office of Professional Responsibility that said this was professional misconduct on you and Bybee's part, and he changes it. Did he do his own separate investigation? Did he interview you? Did he go through all the things that they did? No. He's a political hack brought in to wash things over. So he takes that and goes, no, it's not professional misconduct. I, in my uh, you know, infinite wisdom, have decided that it does not rise to that level. It's just simply um, something we disagree with. Well, it's just a matter of disagreement then, isn't it? So they will not be brought before uh, the bar. There will be no uh, investigation. No crimes were committed, even though they did all this investigation and said they sh that this was misconduct. Throw that in the garbage because they brought in a politician or a guy who will do whatever a politician says, and in this case, Obama to say, we're going to look forward, we're not going to look backward. The Justice Department's job is not to look at crimes of the past, which is, of course, nonsense. That's exactly what the Justice Department is supposed to do. 
they look at crimes that happened. They're not supposed to look into the future, what crimes might possibly happen. No, you look at the crimes that did happen and prosecute them. So, they are free to go. No one will suffer any consequences for the torture that was ordered, for the ridiculous, outrageous, so-called legal memorandum that were written to justify it. And John, you will continue to be a, a law professor. Ha! A law professor. Here's the, the critical part. It's one thing for somebody to break the law. It's another thing for someone to sanction it. Sanctioning it is almost worse. Because, look, you'll always have criminals. You'll always have people pushing the boundaries, in this case, of our democracy. To say, oh, no, no, the president is above the law. The president can break the law. The president could order torture. The president could order murder. And none of it matters. You'll always have those guys. But if you don't punish them, or if you don't at least say, hey, this is misconduct, this was legally wrong, then you say, it's okay, it's sanctioned. And the next time a Republican comes in office, or maybe a Democrat, they're going to turn back and say, well, it was a matter of disagreement. It's not really illegal. It's not really misconduct. It's just a matter of disagreement. So now we go back to torturing and killing. And that is more dangerous than anything else. Obama here with, honestly, in my opinion, his cowardice in not pursuing what the real Justice Department findings were in burying them has set a terrible and grave precedent. precedent. Torture is no longer illegal. It's just a matter of opinion. And it's hard to do more damage to the country than by setting that precedent. 2010 was the year that the Citizens United ruling came down, just in time to flood the Tea Party election with dark money. We'll be uh, getting more into the Tea Party later. Uh, but first, we're going to hear what some politicians had to say about what the ruling would bring. It's been two weeks since the Supreme Court's ruling in the Citizens United case. That's the decision stating that when it comes to directly influencing our elections, corporations can spread their cash as freely as they wish. In truth, it's not as if they haven't already been throwing their financial weight around. Hundreds of millions of dollars are poured into lobbying, political action committees, and thinly veiled issue ads promoting or attacking candidates. Now the biggest concern is how corporations might use their newly acquired power to unleash wave after wave of ads for or against any politician right up until Election Day. Some members of Congress are not waiting to find out. They're scrambling for ways to counter the Supreme Court decision, especially its core assumptions that money is speech and corporations have the same rights as people when it comes to spending it. This week, Speaker Nancy Pelosi named a task force of House Democrats to fight back against the decision and determine what they can do, if anything, legislatively. I know we share. And Democrats in the House and Senate began hearings. We've seen firsthand the impact special interests like big oil and big banks and health insurance companies have had on the legislative process. Now, with this decision, already powerful corporations and unions will be able to further open their bank accounts, further drowning out the voices of everyday Americans in the political process. I can't imagine a greater threat to independent decision-making by this body than corporations implicitly or explicitly being able to say, 
if you don't follow my line, I'll single-handedly put enough resources into this contest to defeat you. <clears throat> but you Republicans, who for the most part were pleased with the court's decision, took issue with the Democrats' dire warnings. He who has the most money does not always win. Indeed, many times he who has the most money spends it stupidly and ends up helping the other side. Uh, <clears throat> just because someone has the right to speak does not mean that he or she will speak intelligently or effectively. It is obvious that many individuals, especially on the Democratic side, disagree with the Supreme Court's decision. But all of these points lead in one direction, toward the government deciding who can speak, who can't speak, and how much they can speak. That is exactly the position our founders rejected when crafting the First Amendment, and it is exactly the position the Supreme Court rejected in Citizens United. Thinking back to the arguments over Citizens United, like the ones we just heard, make me wish that, that we had this phrase that I only heard recently in regards to social media platforms like Facebook and how we can differentiate between the problem and the concept of free speech because they get conflated too often. And the phrase is quick, pithy, and to the point. It's not about freedom of speech. It's about freedom of reach. It's a completely different problem to be trying to solve. Citizens United is all about exploding the safeguards around freedom of reach. And it's that reach by moneyed interests that are able to drown out the freedom of speech of everyone else. Now, secondly, we hear what the Supreme Court itself, in the dissenting opinion, had to say. This is the concern that was expressed by the dissenters, the four dissenters. They said corporate domination of electioneering can generate the impression that corporations dominate our democracy. Citizens may lose faith in their capacity as citizens to influence public policy. A government captured by corporate interests, citizens may come to believe, will be neither responsive to their needs nor willing to give their views a fair hearing. The predictable result is cynicism and disenfranchisement, an increased perception that large spenders call the tune, and a reduced willingness of voters to take part in gov democratic governance. To the extent that corporations are allowed to exert undue influence in election races, the speech of the eventual winners of those races may also be chilled. So first they say, this is, this is the dissent. These are the guys who lost, who said, no, we shouldn't give corporations absolute rights of free speech. First they say, by giving corporations rights of free speech, you're going to cause average individual citizens to say, screw it, why should I participate? The corporations own the politicians, they're running the show, why should I even bother to vote? In other words, democracy itself is at risk. And that's what these activist conservative judges have done today. They've put democracy itself at risk. Then they go on to talk about the impact on politicians. To the extent that corporations are now allowed to exert undue influence in election races, electoral races, the speech of the eventual winners of those races may also be chilled. Politicians who fear that a certain corporation can make or break their re-election chances may be cowed into silence about that corporation. Unregulated corporate electioneering might diminish the ability of citizens to hold officials accountable to the people and disserve the goal of a public debate that is uninhibited, robust, and wide open. 
the majority's unwillingness to distinguish between corporations and humans similarly blinds it to the possibility that corporate war chests and their special advantages in uh, of corporate war chests and their special advantages in the legal realm and it may translate into special advantages in the market for legislation gee you think So to be clear, in 2010, we already had a system that was unresponsive to the majority of people in favor of moneyed interest. Citizens United put that into high gear. So you create a system that's unresponsive to the people, which of course disillusions them about the system itself, leading them to be willing to do something drastic and potentially vote for someone who's promising to blow up the system itself because of how dysfunctional it is, and you see where that may lead. Now, speaking of dysfunctional systems, it's important to remember the Scott Brown election from 2010 and why it was important. Because as hard as it is to believe, especially if you didn't live through it, in 2010, in, the, in 2009, in the beginning of 2010, the Democrats had a 60-seat majority in the Senate. Republicans only had 40 senators at the time. And what that meant was that the Democrats, if they could hold everyone together, could avoid Republican filibusters. But the moment that Scott Brown was elected in Massachusetts in a special election in the wake of Ted Kennedy's death, the spread went from 60-40 to 59-41, which opened the door to the Republicans being able to filibuster every single piece of legislation, something that had really never been done with the filibuster before. The Democrats are being completely undermined by the only thing that could jeopardize their being in power. Their being in power. <laughs> they have risen to great heights only to fall, folks. They're like Icarus flying too close to the sun. Plus, Naked guys wearing wings, kind of gay. <laughs> they lost the Massachusetts Senate seat, which can only mean one thing for the Dems. Is the Democratic majority at risk in the House? I think everything's at risk. In retreat, the president and Democratic leaders are scrambling to salvage something. The Democratic Party is collapsing. Yes, the Democrats are totally collapsing with only the presidency, a 70-seat majority in the House, and an 18-seat majority in the Senate. Right, pundits? In order to get anything important passed in the Senate, you need 60 votes. It takes about 60 votes to get almost mm -hmm. anything done in the Senate. It's such a key Senate seat, uh, moving Democrats into what's essentially, uh, you know, a, a bit of a minority. Yes, uh, my calculator agrees, 41 is more than 59, and this is the calculator I use to do my taxes. Well, the Democrats' problem is all thanks to the filibuster, a time-honored Senate procedure in which the minority party blocks a bill by staging endless speeches like when Jimmy Stewart did it in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and the time Strom Thurmond staged a record-setting filibuster in 1957 to block the Civil Rights Act. By the way, when he began talking, he looked like this. But... They, they grow up so fast. 
But folks, the filibuster rules changed in the 1970s. Now, all you have to do is threaten to filibuster. It's really better for everyone. I mean, Joe Lieberman threatened to filibuster the public option, and no one wants to see what he looks like after 36 hours of no sleep. <laughs> now, some say the filibuster is a recipe for endless gridlock. After all, what's to stop the Dems from filibustering everything the next time they're out of power? Only one thing. Democrats are pussies. <laughs> I thought it would be good to end on that sexist joke because it gives the opportunity to point out that I never, ever would have thought of that joke as being sexist at the time. So interesting how things change. And now we pivot to the final fight and passage of Obamacare. So explain this to the visit from Mars. I mean, just this week, the Washington Post and ABC News had a poll showing that the American public supports the Medicare buy-in uh, right. by margin of some 30 points. Right. And yet it went down like a lead balloon. Look, look there, there are two ways, if you're the president of the United States, sizing up a situation like this, that you can try and create reform. One is to say, well, the interest groups are so powerful that the only thing I can do is I can work with them and move the ball a few yards, get some incremental reform, hope it turns into something better. The other way you can do it is try to rally the people against the special interests and play on the fact that the insurance industry, the drug industry are not going to win any popularity contests with the American people and you as the president be the champion of the people against the special interests. Uh, that's the course that Obama chose not to pursue. If I'm high on anything, it is the bitter tears of liberal Democrats. Because yesterday, the Dems officially dropped from the Senate health care bill both the public option and an alternate plan for 55 to 65-year-olds to buy into Medicare. At this point, the only reform left in the bill is government-mandated post-appointment lollipops. <laughs> I don't eat too many. You're not covered for type 2 diabetes. Now, the credit for killing these socialist initiatives has to go to noted Hermaphrepublican Joe Lieberman, who stated his position on this Sunday's Face the Nation. I will tell you that on one part of it, the so-called Medicare buy-in, though I don't know exactly what's in it, from what I hear, I certainly would have a hard time voting for it. It takes true political courage to oppose a bill when you don't know what's in it. The point is, folks, Lieberman threatened to filibuster and the Democratic leadership caved. So please join me in thanking him. For he's a jolly good fellow. For he's a jolly good fellow. For he's a jolly good fellow. Your coverage will be denied. Now, dedicated Lieber heads, the real Lieber lovers out there, may notice there is a subtle shift in Joe's present position from what it was way back 90 days ago when he said this to his home state newspaper, the Connecticut Post. I was very focused on a group, uh, post 50, maybe post more like post 55, and what I was proposing was that they have an option to buy into um, Medicare. Now, yes, 
He proposed an option to buy into Medicare, which technically means that yesterday he threatened to filibuster his own proposal. But that is easily explained. Clearly, Lieberman has gone from having Jomentum to having Jomentia. But I'm sure he'll get great treatment. After all, he's 65. He's covered by Medicare. I played that one because it was a nice twofer. It, it helps remind us forever that Joe Lieberman is the singular reason that we don't already have a Medicare buy-in, which is you know what the more conservative Democrats are suggesting today, 10 years later. And let us never forget that Al Gore lost the 2000 presidential election after choosing Joe Lieberman, one of the most conservative senators in the Senate, to be his running mate. But also the second thing is the chance to highlight yet another, I mean, Colbert was on a roll, a sexist joke talking about the Democrats in general and a transphobic joke talking about Joe Lieberman. So again, it just really goes to show how much things have changed in that realm. With his signature, President Obama made what once seemed impossible, the law of the land. Today, after almost a century of trying, today, after over a year of debate, today, after all the votes have been tallied, health insurance reform becomes law in the United States of America. Earlier in the proceedings, Vice President Biden, still not accustomed to standing near open microphones, after he introduced the president, Biden apparently let a very strong word slip into his feelings about the moment. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States of America, Barack Obama. No bleeping necessary from there on out. Nearly every president since Teddy Roosevelt has tried to enact health care reform of some kind. The 44th president of the United States thanked all of them, plus Teddy Kennedy. I'm signing this bill for all the leaders who took up this cause through the generations. From Teddy Roosevelt to Franklin Roosevelt. From Harry Truman to Lyndon Johnson. Bill and Hillary Clinton, to one of the deans uh, who's been fighting this so long, John Dingell, to Senator Ted Kennedy. And it's fitting that Ted's widow, Vicki, is here. I remember seeing Ted walk through that door in a summit in this room a year ago, one of his last public appearances. And it was hard for him to make it. But he was confident that we would do the right thing. When it came time to talk about the legislation, the president said health care reform would soon speak for itself. In a few moments, when I sign this bill, all of the overheated rhetoric over reform will finally confront the reality of reform. <laughs> this year, Tens of thousands of uninsured Americans with pre-existing conditions, the parents of children who have a pre-existing condition, 
will finally be able to purchase the coverage they need. That happens this year. This year, insurance companies will no longer be able to drop people's coverage when they get sick. They won't be able to place lifetime limits or restrictive annual limits on the amount of care they can receive. This year, this year, all new insurance plans will be required to offer free preventive care. And this year, young adults will be able to stay on their parents' policies until they are 26 years old. That happens this year. Okay, and now possibly the moment you've all been waiting for, the Tea Party. About a week ago, the New York Times published a poll of Tea Party participants across the country. We do not spend a lot of time talking about polls on this show, especially polls of social movements that don't have formal membership and are pretty loosely defined. But there was one thing written up in that poll that has stuck with me that I can't really get out of my head. Uh, this is from the end of, of the New York Times synopsis of their findings. Nearly three quarters of those who favor smaller governments said they would prefer it even if it meant spending on domestic programs would be cut. But in follow-up interviews, this I cannot get this out of my head. Tea Party supporters said they did not want to cut Medicare or Social Security, the biggest domestic programs, suggesting instead a focused on, quote, waste. <clears throat> That's a conundrum, isn't it? Asked Jodine White, age 62, of Rockland, California. I don't know what to say. Maybe I don't want smaller government. I guess I want smaller government and my social security. She added, I didn't look at it from the perspective of losing things I need. I think I've changed my mind. Right there on the spot, talking to the New York Times pollster. It's sort of perfect, isn't it? Whatever you think about the Tea Party protests and their tactics, now they get their message across. This right here has been one of the persistent centrist and liberal critiques of the Tea Party movement and this whole Obama-era anti-government uprising on the right. That sort of blatant, clear-as-day contradiction. Get your government hands off my Medicare. Get the government out of my life. Don't touch my Social Security. These are not apocryphal stories. I mean, made up by liberals, right? This lady really is wearing a taxpayer revolt t-shirt while holding a sign that reads, don't touch my Medicare. She's not a staffer on the show. We did not make her up. This guy uh, really did direct people to throw bricks through the windows of Democratic Party offices to protest there being too much government while he is living on Social Security disability payments, which you might know are from the government. It's a contradiction that's present even in the way these folks choose to articulate their protest against the government. For example, the, the, the march on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., which even while it's being used as a staging ground for anti-government protesters, is a government-funded national park. Protesters last week inveighing against government encroachment on private property while standing on probably the most famous piece of public property in America. It even has a commie-sounding name. The Boston Common. Common. Get it? One of the country's oldest national parks. On Monday, anti-government protesters showed off their right to bear arms in a government-funded state park in Virginia. You might remember when Tea Party folks converged on Washington, D.C. for the big 9-12 anti-government march last year. In addition to using a national park for the site of their protest, one of the great footnotes to that protest were, were the complaints 
by many 912 protesters that the public transportation system that they used in D.C. to get to their anti-government march, they didn't feel was up to their standards. Now, this next one is particularly interesting, I think, because I cannot imagine it happening today, especially in part because of how this played out. But the Republican Party, the House Republicans, invited Barack Obama to come to their meeting and have a conversation with them with cameras present. And I do not think that it went the way they thought it would. And also, it gave Barack Obama a chance to demonstrate that he really did understand the political dynamics at play at the time. He goes to the House Republican meeting. And I'll tell you what, policy-wise, I got issues with this. And I'm going to explain why I think the overall strategy is a bad idea. But here's what you cannot argue with. What he did today absolutely worked. Politically brilliant. Okay, He goes in there and... It was, everybody couldn't take their eyes off of it. Everybody's watching it, okay? So one of the most, reporters, Ezra Klein from the Washington Post said, maybe the most interesting political moment he's seen in his lifetime, okay? Not in terms of like, of course, the Obama election was gigantic, et cetera, but as a snippet in time. And he starts a debate with the House Republicans. And they say, all right, how about this? And he says, all right, here's my answer. And you know what? He effectively answers all of their questions. And by the end, the Republicans go, oh, my God, what did we do? Why did we allow cameras in here? This guy just took our, came into our house, slept with our wife, and he's walking out the back door. What happened? Okay. So we're in a lot of trouble here. Uh, this about health care and the health care debate, because I think it also bears on a whole lot of other issues. If you look at the package that we've presented, and there's some stray cats and dogs that got in there that we were eliminating. We were in the process of eliminating. For example, for example, we said from the start that that it was going to be important for us to be consistent in saying to people, if you can have your, if you want to keep the health insurance you got, you can keep it. That you're not going to have anybody getting in between you and your doctor in your decision making. And I think that some of the provisions that got snuck in uh, might have violated that pledge. And so we were in the process of scrubbing this and making sure that it's tight. But if you were to listen to the debate and, frankly, how some of you went after this bill, you'd think that this thing was uh, some Bolshevik plot. No, I mean that's how you guys—that's how you guys presented it. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, how is it that a plan that is pretty centrist? No, no. Look, I mean, I'm just saying. I know, I know you guys disagree, but if you look at the facts of this bill, most independent observers would say. This is actually what many Republicans, it, it is similar to what many Republicans proposed to Bill Clinton when he was doing his debate on health care. So all, all I'm saying is we've got to close the gap a little bit between the rhetoric and the reality. I'm not suggesting that we're going to agree on everything, whether it's on health care or energy or what have you. But if the way 
these issues are being presented by the Republicans is that this is some wild-eyed plot to impose huge government in every aspect of our lives, what happens is you guys then don't have a lot of room to negotiate with me. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that many of you, if you voted with the administration on something, are politically vulnerable in your own base, in your own party. You've given yourselves very little room to work in a bipartisan fashion because what you've been telling your constituents is, this guy's doing all kinds of crazy stuff that's going to destroy America. And I, I would just say that we have to think about tone. It's not just on your side, by the way. It's, it's on our side as well. This is part of what's happened in our politics, where we demonize the other side so much that when it comes to actually getting things done, it becomes tough to do. So one of the major criticisms against Obama in those years was that he was always too willing to compromise with a party that showed no interest in compromise with him. And that clip demonstrates that it wasn't naivete. It's not that he thought, no, if I just offer to compromise enough, they'll come around. He understood the political dynamics that was preventing the Republican Party from compromising with him, which honestly makes his actions in those years and all the years after that much more confusing. And now, speaking of too much compromise, uh, we move on to financial reform as we're trying to fix the problems that helped cause the Great Recession. And I just want to point out that in April 2009, that's when Elizabeth Warren had her first appearance on The Daily Show. And this, like, really catapulted her into the mainstream. And she became the person who talked about needing to not compromise with the banks and really take them to task. And if, if you want to hear that story in full, I really recommend it. Check out the December 13th, 2019 episode of The Daily from The New York Times. They, they dive deep into all of that. This, what you're about to hear, is from the Colbert Report in the middle of 2010 when she's really hit her stride. Explain to a conservative why he should support curtailing the ability of banks to do anything they want. Well, because conservatives believe in markets, and the way markets work with contracts is that you understand it and I understand it. We decide to make contracts that are in both of our interests. So the idea is just to level the playing field here a little bit. You get to understand the contract, personal responsibility, make a decision if that's a contract you should take on. But if I'm the bank, don't I get to change the contract anytime I want? Well, that's one of the things that makes it not like real contract law. I, I believe Because I'm fine you understanding the contract as long as I get to change that understanding without telling you. Well, that... Isn't that how it works now? Uh, and that's a problem. And that's working out for the banks. It's working out for the banks, but it's not working out so well for uh, millions and millions of American families. Now, the Democrats have this this uh, financial reform package. That's the right. Republicans have a financial reform package, too. Let's, let's hear about that one. Say a couple positive things about that. Well, um, so the idea behind the Republican Consumer Agency is that they will take the heads of all the agencies that failed and brought us to this economic crisis, yes. the folks who were asleep on the job and didn't protect consumers, yes. and they'll put them in a committee and put the committee in charge. 
They know the lay of the land, though. They know... They do. You know? Why do we need reform? Don't we... Why do we need to regulate the banks? Don't we have bank regulators now? There's something called bank regulators. I've heard that term bandied about. Why do we have to wear, like... Why do we have to wear a belt with our suspenders? We already have one set no, of regulators. No, actually, right now, we don't have any pants on when it... <laughs> I, I mean... At the end of last week, we had financial reform, uh, and of course, as usual, uh, the Obama team get it let out a little, you know, and mission accomplished, the whole thing. I started saying that about healthcare reform, now everybody's writing about it in terms of financial reform as well, and saw a story out there saying, hey, you know what, Obama's going to go campaign, saying that he did this wonderful financial reform and everything's fixed now. That's a disastrous idea because nothing is fixed. Now let me give you the specifics. Why do I have significant trouble with this bill? Point number one, uh, here is the New York Times writing an article about how uh, Wall Street's reacting to it. One veteran investment banker said, quote, if you talk to anyone privately, there's a sigh of relief. In other words, the bill didn't do nothing. Okay, they thought, whew, maybe I thought we thought they might do actually something. No, they didn't do a damn thing. They, he says, at most, it will cut into their profits 15 to 20 percent, but there's no breakup of any institution or any onerous new taxes. And other uh, investment bankers says, nah, at most it'll cut into profits by about 4 percent, but we'll get to keep doing business exactly as it is. Now look, I don't want to cut in their profits. It's not about, oh, they're making too much profit. It's about, did you fix the system? And here they're saying, oh, thank God they didn't actually fix the system. So, you know, that might cost me a little bit here and there, but I'm going to keep doing the same highway robbery I was before. A uh, guy who used to work in the uh, Clinton Treasury Department, Roger Altman, who is now at chairman of Evercore Partners, says the health care bill, get a load of this quote, the health care bill is going to transform the structure of health care exponentially more than this legislation on financial regulation is going to change Wall Street. It's not even close, he says. So if you thought health care reform was weak sauce, Wait till you get a load of how weak financial reform is. They're laughing at us. Wall Street's laughing. Ha, <laughs> this is what you got. Obama, change. Ha, <laughs> pocket change. Easy pushover. Let me give you specifics on what's wrong with the bill. Here's quoting the New York Times. The Senate rejected rules that would have broken up huge banks considered too big to fail or imposed limits on their size. Caps on how much banks can charge credit card holders to borrow also fell by the wayside. And the long-established wall between trading and commercial banking, which was put, torn down in 1999, will not be going back up. Okay, 0 for 4. Nicely done. Another reason for relief, several bankers said, is that neither the Senate version of the bill nor the one passed by the House in December includes the more populous provisions that have gained foothold in Europe, like a tax on financial transactions or individual bonuses. So we leave the structure exactly as it is. We didn't break up too big to fail, etc., as I explained to you. And we didn't even say, hey, you know what, financial transaction tax or a bonus tax that Europe is doing that is eminently reasonable because they're making all that money, their salaries, their bonuses, the profits of the banks because of the easy credit we're giving them and the backdoor bailouts we're giving them, let alone the actual flat-out money we gave them. They're taking our money and running with it, and we're not doing a damn thing with, about it. <laughs> and then the New York Times said, as I have said over and over, the one thing that's, um, there are two things that are good in the bill. One is on the ratings agencies, the Senator Franken passed that amendment, that's solid. The second is, 
hey, Lincoln's Amendment on derivatives, right? <laughs> Don't get too excited about that because derivatives are very, very important, and they would have to split them from the banks, except they still have to do the Senate and the House version, and uh, the New York Times says uh, in that conference committee, that provision is, quote, likely to be shelved or watered down. You think they're going to actually do a tough provision? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, another banker said, this legislation is not going to kill business. Um, even if their profit margins are reduced, uh, the derivatives business will compare favorably to more traditional banking activities like commercial lending. You understand the downside of that? He said, look, we're not going to lend any more money, and new numbers are in on that. They're, they stopped lending completely. They're like, no, we're going to do the profitable stuff, which is the derivatives trading. So we're going to suck up all that taxpayer money and easy credit, and we're not going to lend it out to small businesses or large businesses. We're going to use it to gamble more because you didn't stop us. Change you can believe in. And from there, he actually went on for at least another five minutes describing even more and even even more dire problems with the financial reform bill, which is why all the banks that were too big to fail are now even bigger now than they were when they weren't allowed to fail the first time. And we'll wrap up the financial reform section with one of the best explanations of what happened back during the crash. How did we get there? And looking at the banks that created terrible products for their customers, sold them to their customers, and then bet against them themselves. Step one. We write a check for $10 million, hand the check to a Wall Street bank, and ask them to make us a CDO. Step two. They create the CDO using risky stuff. Very risky stuff. Extremely risky stuff. Step three. Other investors commit hundreds of millions of dollars to the CDO. Step four. We bet against the CDO using a credit default swap. Step five. The housing market crashes. The CDO's value drops to zero. Our bet pays off and we make hundreds of millions of dollars. And before you can say step six, we're rich. We're going to bet against the American dream. We're going to be on the winning team. Purchase risky debt on a massive scale. Then place a bet that the debt will fail. Hundreds of millions from Magnetar. The economy collapsing like a dying star. No one will know till it's on NPR. And who cares? It's time to hit the town. This sucker could go down. The housing market's losing steam. And all we gotta do to make our dreams come true is bet against the American dream. And now to switch gears dramatically, uh, you may or may not remember that the conflict between Israel and Palestine actually goes back to 2010 and beyond. It's actually older than 2010, but in 2010, it was going about as you'd expect. Israel update. Andy, the sun may rise, the sun may set, the leaves may bud and fall, but a few things will remain constant in all our lives. The Japanese will always love cartoon monsters, that and unsettling pornography. Two, Kenya will always produce world-class distance runners. And three, Israel will have a tendency to, out of nowhere, do something f- 
fucking crazy, <laughs> incredibly frustrating, and that does nothing to further their image or cause worldwide. And this week was no different from any other week. As you may have heard, nine people died and 30 were wounded when Israeli troops boarded or stormed a flotilla of ships carrying aid to Gaza. And that last sentence is indicative of what you're dealing with here. Even describing the act is now controversial. No one can even agree on the semantics of the circumstances. The Israelis say they boarded the ship. Though, to be fair... I don't think that you can grammatically be described as boarding anything when you're ziplined down from a helicopter with a loaded machine gun. I've never heard a train conductor say, all aboard, before diving for cover as some last-minute passengers crashing through the ceiling, opening fire on anything that moved. And the establishment in the U.S. was doing about what you'd expect from them as well. Joe Biden has reached a new low. Even though a U.S. citizen was one of the nine people Israeli forces killed on that relief ship to Gaza, the vice president of the United States defended Israel's assault. Not a peep about the dead U.S. citizen, Furkan Dogan, or the other people Israelis killed. Not a peep about Israel violating international law by commandeering a ship on the open seas. Instead, the usual defense of Israel's actions, no matter how brutal and lawless and indefensible they are. With a response like this, and with Obama's mealy-mouthed response too, there's no use in wondering why the U.S. gets lumped in with Israel in the minds of Arabs and Muslims around the world. The Joint Chiefs have already said out loud what many of us have been saying for years, that Washington's blind support for every Israeli misdeed is a threat to our national security. And yet Obama and Biden keep providing that blind support. The illegal and murderous Israeli attack on the Gaza ship was an easy occasion for Washington to put some distance finally between itself and Tel Aviv. But Obama and Biden refused. And so not only does Israel have a black eye on this one, we do too. And we don't have a clear eye left. And then I have just one last tiny clip from that same commenter. Israel long ago lost its mind and its soul. That's what occupation does to the occupier. Now we're merely witnessing the violent spasms of the irrational. Now, I played that clip because I, I find what he's saying interesting, but more interesting is for me to hear that and, and realize that that was played on this show 10 years ago, but knowing full well now that I personally did not understand fully what he was saying at the time that I first heard it and included it on the show, I, I, I needed a lot more context of Israel and its history and the Israel-Palestine conflict and its history, but then also just human psychology and the dynamics of power between two groups of people when there's a power imbalance and what that does to each side in different ways. And I just didn't have any of that 10 years ago whatsoever. And then much more recently, just within the last year or so, I, I watched a documentary that gave me a bit of the flip side of this coin. So like, you know, you've got Israel and I definitely believe that they commit human rights abuses and that the whole situation with Palestine is totally untenable. And I don't have time to get into that right now. But the flip side of it is, is when you take a, a huge step back and look at it as echoes of the Holocaust and, and uh, intergenerational trauma that has trickled down through the community and the diaspora of Jews all over the world. And, and so this documentary that I watched recently is called One of Us, and it's about the ultra-Orthodox community 
in, uh, in, in Brooklyn. And the vast majority of Jews think like, Hey, don't lump me in with those guys. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, that, uh, you know, we need to compare like that. What I'm saying is that this documentary that, that shows this one community of Jewish Holocaust survivors and their descendants who immigrated to New York, the way they run their society can be seen really clearly as an example of intergenerational trauma and how some people respond to that. And so in their case, there's not a huge power imbalance. You know, the Hasidic Jews in New York don't like dominate their neighbors or anything like that. They're not committing human rights abuses against outside groups, but they're kind of committing human rights abuses against their own people, their, you know, their own kids and, and family members. But when you get into the story, you can see the actions of today as a direct result you can draw a straight line back to the Holocaust and its effects and, and the cause and effect of intergenerational trauma. And so the flip side of that being Israel, also stemming from the Holocaust, chock full of intergenerational trauma, quite rightly for all the obvious reasons. The big difference, though, being that there is an enormous power imbalance between Israel and its neighbors. And so anyone with intergenerational trauma for that reason is going to have fear of the outsider, fear for protecting the community. The Hasidic Jews stay super insular and keep themselves protected that way. And Israel has become super militaristic to protect themselves that way. So I don't think that, you know, Israel commits human rights abuses exclusively in a, you know, in a defensive way, as they say, because they refuse to again become a victim as they were during the Holocaust. I, I think a maybe a more accurate way to describe that phenomenon is that they commit human rights abuses because they are still victims of the Holocaust and will continue to be through intergenerational trauma long after the last Holocaust survivor has passed away. Because the progressive perspective on this is that Israel's actions often make them less safe, but they take them anyway because that's all they can see as a way to protect themselves with all the caveats about how obviously everyone in Israel doesn't think the same and they don't all support their government. I'm just talking about the current very, very conservative, very militaristic government of Israel, not the people, not the Jews all over the world and all of that. Uh, anyway, hurt people, hurt people, as the saying goes. So if you want to check out that uh, documentary for yourself, it's called One of Us, and it's on Netflix. Now, speaking of violent spasms of the oppressor, we move on to immigration policy, and purely coincidentally, it's the same commentator. Republicans are in full scapegoat mode right now, and they're taking this country into uglier and uglier territory. Their scapegoat is the immigrant who is here illegally. They want to make life absolutely as miserable as possible for these immigrants, witness Arizona. But not only that, they want the sins of the parents to be visited on the children. They want to amend the very Constitution itself to deny citizenship to children born here in the U.S. to parents who were here illegally. That's right. They want to repeal the 14th Amendment. This isn't just a fringe effort. Ninety-four Republicans in the House are behind it, as are Senators Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, and John Kyle. This is outrageous. The 14th Amendment has been on the books since the end of the Civil War, and seven generations of Americans have benefited from the guaranteed right of citizenship by birth here, regardless of who their parents were. Now we're going to take that away? 
Republicans are stabbing at the very concept of America as a land of freedom and opportunity, and instead of solving the economic crisis, they want the public to single out brown-skinned immigrants and their children for an extra helping of scorn. It's hard to conceive of a more reprehensible strategy. Republican candidate Marge Barker, she's running uh, in, uh, she's actually speaking at a rally of Glenn Beck's 912 project. She's running for a House seat in Florida, and she's about to say some out of control things. Well, let's let you hear it yourself. Clip number eight. Marge, what would be your solution for illegal immigration and and jobs associated with that? We can follow what happened back in the 40s or 50s. I was just a little girl in Miami. And they built camps for the people that snuck into the country because they were illegal. They put them in the camps and they shipped them back. We can do that. We can do saying the stuff about the camps, I thought, well, why is this clip continuing? How can she get any crazier? And then she says, oh, yeah, we should grab our guns. That's part of the answer for immigration, after we have them in the camps. By the way, of course, there were no camps in Miami in the 1940s for Cubans. As I was listening, I was like, really? I don't remember that. Look it up. And of course not. There were two camps uh, in the 1940s, historically, if you remember. One was in America. It was, of course... Uh, the internment camps for the Japanese. Uh, we later apologized for that. You know who apologized for it? Ronald Reagan. Interesting. And then, of course, there were camps in Germany in the 1940s. All right. So she thinks that that camps were a brilliant idea in the 1940s, and we should bring them back for illegal immigrants and make sure we grab our guns while we're at it, because that's part of the solution. You see what I'm talking about? These radical right-wingers are driving the Republican Party completely off the cliff. This is mental. This is insanity. I can't believe we're even having this conversation. So they wanted to target the children of immigrants by doing away with birthright citizenship. And uh, some politicians, especially Tea Party politicians, were already starting to talk about uh, putting immigrants in cages. It's, It's pretty easy to see how the the seeds of today's policies were being sown by the Tea Party politicians of 10 years ago, at least 10 years ago. I'm, I'm sure it stretches back farther. And the most high-profile anti-immigration legislation in the country of 2010 was by far SB 1070 in Arizona, the paper please law.
Today, exactly one week after she signed the Papers, Please anti-immigration bill into law, Arizona's Governor Jan Brewer signed off on a package of amendments to the new law. That was quick. The original law required police in Arizona to stop people who look like they might be in this country illegally and demand to see papers proving otherwise. The changes passed bar police from using race as a reason to suspect someone is in the country illegally, though still no one's come up with any explanation of how exactly a police officer is supposed to know someone's an illegal immigrant just by looking at them. The new changes also require police to be stopping someone for some other potential violation before they can demand to see immigration paperwork. These changes seemed at the outset and are being pitched by proponents of the law as a softening of this draconian measure. But local reporters and critics of the bill say, in practical terms, nothing's really different. They point out that the city and county ordinances that allow police to now demand to see someone's papers include things like proper lawn care and placement of garage sale signs, which means the new law still provides very, very, very broad authority and even encouragement for police officers to question people who they think look like they're in the country illegally. It still means you are presumed illegal in Arizona unless you can prove otherwise, and you can still be detained if you can't prove otherwise. Whether or not the tweaks to the new bill will affect the opposition to it remains to be seen. The Papers, Please law has already provoked a number of boycotts of the whole state, including by the Denver School District and the cities of San Francisco and St. Paul, Minnesota, all of which have banned work-related or publicly funded travel to the state. An independent truckers group is also refusing to transport goods in or out of Arizona for five days. According to the president of the University of Arizona, a number of out-of-state honors students have now decided to attend school elsewhere. And of course, the papers police controversy has come just in time for pro-immigration reform May Day rallies, which are planned for tomorrow in as many as 70 cities across the country. In Los Angeles alone, 100,000 people are expected at that event. Meanwhile, the great national recoil over the Arizona law looks like it is motivating Democrats in D.C., to make a legitimate push for comprehensive reform. If you were a member of the Democratic leadership right now and you wanted to get at least one more big thing done in Congress before the midterm elections, which would you choose? Would you choose the climate bill? Today we're announcing the expansion of offshore oil and gas exploration. My administration will consider potential areas for development in the mid and South Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico. Would you choose the climate bill? whose political viability hinged on the president folding in offshore drilling to get conservative support. You want to try to get that through now? Or if you're part of the Democratic leadership in Congress, do you want to try for immigration reform instead? In the wake of the Papers, Please law that has shocked the conscience of the nation and has split the Republican Party right down the middle. If you're in the Democratic leadership right now and you're thinking, which big problem that needs fixing do you want to try to get done before the election? Do you pick the one that pits the Democrats against each other and the president and the part and the president against the party base and much of the country? Or do you pick immigration, which more or less unifies Democrats and which puts Republicans at each other's throats heading into the election? Now, I left that question about the politics of it in there because it leads so nicely into our next story, which was taking place at literally the exact same time as the paper please law in Arizona in late April 2010. 
It's horrifying to watch the BP oil spill as it touches down on the reefs and beaches of Louisiana. The spill's enormous, with as many as 210,000 gallons a day gushing out of British Petroleum's underwater well that was damaged when the Transocean rig exploded earlier this week. And it couldn't have happened at a worse time. Whales and dolphins are swimming in the area. Brown pelicans are trying to raise their young there. Oyster catchers are migrating, as are other shorebirds, but the oysters, crabs, fish, and shrimp they rely on are going to be covered with poisonous oil. This is a man-made catastrophe and a preventable one. BP has one of the worst safety records of any oil company in the U.S., and it's lobbied Congress against increased regulations as is the case of Massey Energy and its coal mining disaster, this one is the fatal result of reckless corporate behavior and too little regulation. And the oil spill has put a huge splotch on Barack Obama's plans to open up more areas to offshore drilling. At least for the moment, Obama's put these plans on hold, pending an investigation into what went wrong. But the risk of a catastrophic oil spill has always been obvious. Obama himself warned about it during his presidential campaign. That was when he opposed offshore drilling. When President Obama returns to this coast tomorrow for his third visit since the BP oil disaster began, my guess is that he will feel concern for the welfare of this region. He will feel frustration at the failure to keep oil off these shores. He will feel pressure as an executive, as a leader, as a politician to do something more about this crisis. But I am also pretty sure that President Obama will feel disgusted because what he will encounter when he gets out into this oil is disgusting. The oil now coating the wildlife and the beaches of this beautiful coast stinks. It stinks, it smells bad, it is filthy, it is slimy, it is sticky, it is toxic, even if Mississippi Governor Haley Barber wants to say that it's not. It is irredeemably foul and it is everywhere. And when you come upon it in person, having only seen it on television, At least if you're me, you are overwhelmed by the post-apocalyptic sensory experience of a man-made disaster irretrievably destroying part of our country. You are disgusted that BP put this ocean and this coast and the communities inland in jeopardy. Disgusted at the billions of dollars of quarterly profits that lined the oil industry's pockets and deepened their wells and didn't do a thing to prevent this. You are disgusted that the government let BP and the rest of the oil industry do it. Disgusted that American leaders scream, drill, baby, drill, without considering the consequences, all in the name of whoring themselves for a few votes during the few months that gasoline prices were rising. Disgusted that the booms off this coast meant to protect it mostly aren't doing anything. Disgusted that those booms remain largely unmanned. Disgusted that there isn't much more to do, except maybe put more people here to try to make this totally inadequate technology try to work less horribly than it does. This, this, this is not Hurricane Katrina. This isn't another Katrina. This isn't another anything. This is a whole new thing happening to us. This is America's Deepwater Horizon disaster. We all own it forever. And right now, right here in Grand Isle and all along the Gulf Coast, there are really only three things that matter. Stopping the oil from flowing, protecting the coast and the ocean from the millions of gallons of oil that have already spilled, and making sure that this never, ever happens again. You can diagnose whether we have a functioning media in this country by whether or not the country understands that this is a vile environmental mega disaster. You can diagnose whether we have a functioning political system in this country by whether or not the results of this mega disaster is change. Big oil has been too rich to care about what it was putting us all at risk for. 
and we've been too cowardly to change direction and break free from them. If that changes because of our national disgust at this disaster, then America's political system in 2010 works. If it doesn't change, then it doesn't work. And now just for fun, a quick couple of clips about someone who is now much more famous for Brexit, but was getting a mention during the BP oil spill. London Mayor and professional buffoon Boris Johnson complained that the United States was unleashing a wave of anti-British rhetoric. But even if that is true, Andy, our company did do this. Let's remember that. How do you think the American rhetoric would be if uh, McDonald's had spilled three and a half billion hamburgers off the Dover coast? (laughs) It might lean a little toward the negative. And one more. Boris Johnson certainly can't understand the hating. He said... Uh, BP has uh, presided over a catastrophic, catastrophic accident, uh, which is trying to remedy. Uh, but uh, ultimately, it, it cannot be faulted because it was uh, an accident that took place. Uh. <laughs> so it can't be faulted for the accident because the accident was an accident. I looked up an article to go along with that story, and it is a real quote of Boris Johnson saying that BP couldn't be blamed for the accident because it was an accident. But the most amusing part of the article was the image of Johnson that went along with it, of him looking like he's being released from jail the morning after being arrested for drunken disorderly. He's very much on brand. Now, pivoting once again, uh, this is just some of the most classic conservative media of the early Obama years. So Kagan, 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 is Obama's Harriet Myers, his his Bush-like misstep. Kind of sucks because he's still recovering from his last Bush-like misstep. It's been called Obama's Katrina. Is this going to be Obama's Katrina? President Obama's Katrina. It's crazy. It's like no matter what happens during the Obama administration, there's the perfect Bush up for the occasion. Could health care be Obama's Iraq? Is this, as some are suggesting, Barack Obama's Enron? Unemployment rate from 9 to 11 could be Obama's 9-11. Are we now watching Obama's mission accomplished speech? They've got their, you know, brown, heck of a job brownie moment. This is Obama's my pet goat moment. It's like Bush has a set of greeting cards. Oh, you displayed a complete lack of self-awareness during a time that will be seen as a test of your leadership? Well, there's a Bush up for that. Now, the crazy part is, it's conservatives and Republicans that are in the biggest rush to make the comparisons. Remember that terrible thing that Bush did that we fought for eight years to convince you wasn't bad, but actually good? Well, now we use those very incidents as the low watermark for your guy. And they're not just interested, they're not just, they're not just interested in comparing Obama's new problems with Bush's old problems. They're also looking to bequeath all that Bush oversaw, like some kind of cancerous heirloom. It's Barack Obama's economy. This is now Obama's deficits. This is his debt. And it's pretty rapidly going to become the Obama recession. Afghanistan is President Obama's war now. It's like these guys treat the country like a sleazy used car salesman. Hey, 
I gotta tell you, this is a beautiful country. Runs like a dream. We have kept it totally tuned for eight years. It's cherry. You're not gonna have a problem with it at all. Oh, you'll take it? It's your piece of shit now. And the best part... The best part is they can't even recognize their own tacit admission of the previous administration's failure. At this point, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of those I miss Bush billboards all around the country. Pretty soon, you know, people are going to start printing out bumper strips that say, we miss George Bush. Yeah, I really miss the days when America was being let down and failed by a patriot. <laughs> you know, for these conservative pundits, this might be their choke on a pretzel moment. I hope you'll forgive some of those musical overlays. That one was particularly uh, obvious. I have most of these clips archived individually on their own, but some I had to pull straight from the old episodes complete with their uh, musical transitions. This next clip, though, this is my only clip on education. You'll recall that the George W. Bush administration worked on really overhauling the education system with no child left behind, really r ratcheting up high-stakes testing, high-stakes both for students and teachers, as it turns out. And this is a real short clip. This is Arne Duncan, the education secretary under Obama, speaking with Colbert. And just have a listen. What makes it specifically an Obama vision for the future? I mean, is, does it include reparations? Because the whole health panel, the whole health reform is actually just reparations. You know that, no, This right? isn't about uh, the death panels. It's not about reparations. This is about having high expectations for every child. It's about challenging everyone to take responsibility, personal responsibility. Students, parents, teachers, principals. I understand you're no longer using the term uh, no child left behind. Is Correct. that true? Is that Correct. true? So you're fine with leaving children behind. I'm not fine. I just want to get that on record. I'm not fine with leaving children behind. No Child Left Behind did a pretty good job articulating the problem. I'm much more focused on the solutions. How do we make sure every child has a great teacher? How do we get our best teachers working in historically underserved communities, rural, inner city, urban? How do we raise expectations for everyone? At the end of the day, how do we make sure that every high school graduate is college ready and career ready? That's what this is about. It's about okay. raising the bar for the country. Okay. So to be fair, education really wasn't one of Obama's signature issues that he tried really hard to change dramatically or anything. But the corporate wing of the Democratic Party, of which Obama is clearly part and, and the people he put in charge were very much part, are all about charter schools. And charter schools are really just an extension of the neoliberal line of thinking stemming at least back to Reagan. And the phrase, I don't know if it if you heard it and it stuck out to you, but the phrase that Arne Duncan just said in there was personal responsibility. And we should have seen it all come in. We should have seen, okay, this is where they're headed. It's all about uh, you know, dismantling the system of schools as we know it and transitioning to a charter school system where everyone gets to choose where they go. And it's everyone's personal responsibility to not fall through the cracks of which there are many to fall through. And so we continue the march of having way too many tests and way too much emphasis on school choice and charter schools and all of that nonsense, which puts all of the onus on the individual to navigate the system 
focusing on personal responsibility when what a system like that needs is clearly systemic responsibility. Now, changing years again, this has been such an enormous year of news that I have one two-minute clip for you about the nomination and confirmation of Elena Kagan to the Supreme Court. That's basically a footnote in the year 2010, and the only context you need is that Kagan had said previously before her nomination that confirmation hearings were a total waste of time because no one asks real questions or gives real answers. So Kagan will not divulge who she would be as a Supreme Court justice for fear that she will not get to be a Supreme Court justice. And her opponents will not explicitly divulge why they don't want her to be a Supreme Court justice for fear that they will look like provincial little brains. Let's watch it play out. I want America to know who you are. Ms. Kagan's experience draws from a world whose signposts are distant from most Americans. You have a very different belief system than most of the people who come where I come from. You grew up in Manhattan. Manhattan's Upper West Side. Let's just cut to the chase. You're a Jew. (laughs) So with the exposure of Kagan's strange city-like existence not yielding results, the senators moved on to Plan B, Kagan's association with radicals. Ms. Kagan has associated herself with well-known activist judges. Ms. Kagan identified Thurgood Marshall as another of her legal heroes. Justice Marshall's judicial philosophy, however, is not what I would consider to be mainstream. It's more about his judicial philosophy that concerns me. He described his judicial philosophy as, quote, do what you think is right and let the law catch up. These judges really don't deny their activist ideas. They advocate it. You're on Thurgood Marshall? The man widely credited with desegregating America's schools later became the first African-American Supreme Court justice, spent nearly a quarter of a century on the high court. That's your Bill Ayers? That's your Reverend Wright in this situation? Uh, Ms. Kagan, I see you're also a fan of this uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Are you aware the FBI considered him a communist? If a decision doesn't go your way, I assume you'll be uh, marching on the Capitol? So after four days of insinuation, obfuscation, and very little illumination, where do we stand? The question was, would uh, Solicitor General Kagan be confirmed? Solicitor General Kagan will be confirmed. Ah, I keep forgetting the confirmation process isn't really to confirm nominees. It is to confirm what we already think about the confirmation process. To quote a future Supreme Court justice, it is vapid and hollow. Now, many of you will recall the famous Bush tax cuts. These are the ones where they actually mailed checks to people for like 200 bucks pre-9-11, right in the wake of Clinton's presidency. And we had this budget surplus. And so, of course, the conservatives at the time said, well, we don't need to pay down the debt, which is what they always say. But as soon as we had a surplus, they said, great, let's give all this money away. So they mailed a couple hundred bucks to everyone in the country. But there was a compromise. They said, look, we want to have these major tax cuts and we want to give everyone a bunch of money. But, okay, fine. We won't have it be permanent forever. Let's just do this for 10 years. Let's just have a tax cut for 10 years. Give everyone relief, which is the bullshit word that they use. Let's give everyone relief from taxes for 10 years and then it'll go back to normal. Well, okay, so 2010, here we are 10 years later. And how do they frame it? Of course. 
Our top item this week, Fox Business, aired at least 11 segments in the past three days, falsely claiming that the impending expiration of the Bush tax cuts will lead to the largest tax hike ever. Have a listen. Since those tax cuts expire at the end of the year, is this perhaps evidence that tax hikes are coming? But the biggest tax hike in American history is about to hit taxpayers. The administration is waging war on the rich, and by January the 1st, the largest tax increase in U.S. history will take effect. The largest tax hike in U.S. history is coming, and nothing is being done. Shockingly, only three of those segments acknowledge that President Obama's proposed budget calls for retaining the tax cuts for 98% of Americans. So let this be a lesson to everyone. It's a nice reminder to, to talk about this every once in a while. To, when we think really long term, because conservatives are good at thinking really long term, think, you know, their their plan to take over the judiciary from top to bottom. It took several decades, but they did it. So good for them. They think long term about taxes, too. They knew that when they agreed to a compromise to have the tax cuts from the early 2000s expire or sunset, as they said very poetically, they'll sunset in the early uh, you know, 2010s, 2011, they knew that it sounded like a great fiscal compromise at the time, but they also knew that 10 years later, when they were about to expire, it would be seen by many people, encouraged by those conservative politicians, to think of this as a new tax hike rather than the expiration of tax cuts that we always knew would be temporary. They knew that that would be the case. And here's another one, just unrelated to that, but another word of warning for uh, you know some compromise you may think about supporting sometime in the future. What they will often suggest is, okay, let's cut taxes, but also close loopholes at the same time. We got all these loopholes that's allowing corporations to get away with not paying any taxes. So let's lower their taxes, but close their loopholes. So it'll really even out. It'll simplify the tax code. They make that compromise because they know that the loopholes can be put back in later and no one will notice, no one will mind, no one will care. But the tax rates can't be raised because there will be a huge political stink made about it. So that's another compromise. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for the let's lower taxes, but eliminate loopholes because those loopholes are coming back the moment your back is turned. And once taxes get cut, they're never allowed to go back up. That's American Politics 101. Okay, so we've heard what Elizabeth Warren was up to 10 years ago. What about Bernie? What was Bernie up to? And today we saw history on the floor of the Senate. It started at 1025 in the morning and kept going until 6.59 p.m., eight and one half hours and change. Reportedly, the number of people watching it crashing the computer servers of the United States Senate. A filibuster, historic both because of the cause for which it was waged, and in our fifth story tonight because it was not technically a filibuster, but something new and unique. The Bernie Buster. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, self-professed socialist, the first senator to vow opposition to the president's tax cut deal with the Republican Party, speaking to an empty chamber but an enthralled nation. This was the leading trend on Twitter in this country and the second leading one worldwide. 
turning his opposition to this bill into an epic essential lesson about the history of the nation's middle class, its families and children, and about the generational transformation we have witnessed under presidents, Republican and Democratic, in which the rich have not just grown richer, but have redefined the concept of rich. While the future of America's children has been mortgaged and collateralized and securitized and outsourced and leveraged and downsized into nothing. Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, along with nominal Democrat Mary Landrieu, helping out by spelling Sanders for brief breaks. Mr. Sanders began with a simple declaration. Mr. President, um, as I think uh, everyone knows, uh, the President of the United States, President Obama, and the Republican leadership have reached an agreement on a very significant tax bill. Uh, in my view, uh, the agreement that they reached is a bad deal for the American people. I think we can do better. And I am here today to take a strong stand against this bill. And I intend to tell my colleagues and the nation exactly what, why I am in opposition to this bill. You can call what I'm doing today whatever you want. You can call it a filibuster, you can call it a very long speech. I'm not here to set any great records uh, or to, to make a spectacle. I am simply here today to take as long as I can to explain to the American people the fact that we have got to do a lot better than this, this agreement uh, provides. Switching gears again, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed in 2010, in December, and I don't have any clips of that. I didn't make a show on it after it was repealed because I had made so many leading up to it, sort of advocating for it. And then when it happened, I just like went on Christmas vacation and was done with it for the year. But this clip I want to play because I think is really indicative of the LGBTQ movement and why it was so effective. By now, protesters are a common sight at President Obama's events. Lately, some of the most vocal protesters are gay rights activists. With the Justice Department's decision last week to appeal two court rulings that upheld gay rights, they believe they have a lot to complain about. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. Last week, the gay rights group Get Equal followed the president to a fundraiser in Miami at the waterfront home of basketball star Alonzo Mourning. The group unfurled 10-foot banners in view of the White House motorcade and blew noisemakers from boats circling the party. Heather Cronk, one of the leaders, compares the protest to a military campaign. We staged uh, air, land, and sea actions. <laughs> Kronk wants the president to stop disciplinary action against gay members of the military who violate the don't ask, don't tell policy that bars openly gay people from serving. And she's urging activists to withhold money to political candidates who disagree. I think it's because we're desperate. We've been told by the president that he's a fierce advocate for LGBT equality, but we have yet seen uh, very little evidence of that. The president, who supports the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, had hoped to let the Pentagon steer a slow but steady process to get rid of it. But the courts didn't follow the president's timetable, and that's taken a toll on Mr. Obama's relationship with gay activists who helped elect him. Well, it's been a rocky relationship 
certainly to say the least. Richard Socarides advised President Bill Clinton about gay rights issues. Gay and lesbian voters were enthusiastic supporters of President Obama when he ran for office, and he made uh, some significant promises to the gay constituency about what he would do when elected president. And largely, he's been unable to deliver on those so far. There are three main promises: first, repeal "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." Second, overturn the Defense of Marriage Act, which defines marriage as between a man and a woman. And third, pass a federal law to guarantee private companies can't discriminate against gay employees. The point is that they didn't let up pressure. They didn't elect their guy and then expect him to go do the work. They kept the pressure on hard all the way through the process. There was never a moment when the Obama administration didn't feel the pressure from gay rights groups. Advocating for their positions, and that is fundamentally why those movements have been so successful in getting their legislation passed. And I think that should be a lesson to anyone who advocates for the "Hey, calm down, be quiet, don't put too much pressure from the left. Our guys are in. Let them do their work." No, no, no. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Now, a turn for the strange. 2010 was the year of media personalities holding massive rallies on the National Mall. We are mere days away from Glenn Beck's Restoring Honor rally, the rally that is being held on the same date and in the same location as Martin Luther King Jr.'s "I Have a Dream" speech. To prepare, Media Matters compared Beck's words to that of MLK. King specifically pointed to the quote pursuit of social justice as one of his goals. Beck has said, "If you see anything that talks about social or economic justice, those are the language of people like Hugo Chavez." On the role of government in fighting poverty, King said, "Quote: We will place the problems of the poor at the seat." Of the government, Beck had a slightly different opinion. Big government never lifts anybody out of poverty. It creates slaves, people who are dependent on the handouts. But today's most outrageous comment came from Beck's radio show today, when he explained why he had only written bullet points for his 828 speech. I am、uh, doing that so I don't get in the way of the spirit in case he wants to talk. Here's an interesting phenomenon. This election season, two of the most important political events have been orchestrated by not politicians but TV personalities. Fox News anchor Glenn Beck's event happened back in August. This weekend, it was Comedy Central stars John Stewart and Stephen Colbert rallying the masses here in Washington. NPR's Andrea Seabrook reports on the demonstration、uh, or the protest、uh, or whatever it was. The first sign that this was not going to be a normal political rally was when two stars on the Discovery Channel, the MythBusters, Jamie Heineman and Adam Savage, climbed the stage. They had two seismologists and a seismograph set up off stage to record the impact of the entire crowd jumping all at once. Three, two, one. That is the coolest vision I have ever seen. Yeah, I felt that. The crowd packed the mall from the U.S. Capitol to the Washington Monument, 16 blocks of people there to see their political guru. And now, please welcome your host, John Stewart. 
He then brought on supposed conservative Stephen Colbert, who Stewart had to block from trying to get the crowd to kneel before him. No kneeling! There is no kneel. There's no bowing. There's no kneeling. These are reasonable people. This is... They're reasonable for now, John. But soon there'll be a mindless panic mob once I release the bees. And so on. It was more of a spoof of a rally than a rally itself, and the audience played right along. Signs said things like, fight the power after lunch. There's nothing to fear but fear itself and spiders. And from Chris Smith of New York City. Beer. We're here in support of beer. Jen Malik of St. Louis, Missouri, carried a sign that read, hyperbole is destroying America. Her point? Trying to bring adult conversation back to uh, our nation's governance instead of, you suck, no, you suck more, you're evil, no, you're evil. The absurdity of the rhetoric has just gotten out of line. Chuck Yormy drove down from Newark, Delaware. You know, screaming about death panels, screaming that they're going to take 500 billion out of Medicare, and to be screaming like you're a bunch of kindergarten children having tantrums is ridiculous. A group of people march by chanting, three-word slogan. Three-word slogan! Three-word slogan! Three-word slogan! Ow! It wasn't until the very end of the so-called rally to restore sanity that John Stewart got a little serious. And now I thought we might have a moment, however brief, for some sincerity. Uh, if that's okay, I know there are boundaries for a comedian, pundit, talker guy, and I'm sure I'll find out tomorrow how I have violated them. All the bickering and hostility and hyperbole in politics these days, Stewart lays the blame, at least in part, on the media. The press can hold its magnifying glass up to our problems, bringing them into focus, illuminating issues heretofore unseen. Or they can use that magnifying glass to light ants on fire. And then perhaps host a week of shows on the sudden, unexpected, dangerous, flaming ant epidemic. He seemed pleased and surprised by the number of people who showed up for an event that was more a protest of politics than a political protest. Now, this next clip requires a little bit of explanation because it's standing in for a lot. I'm not going to have time for the ground zero mosque story, what the conservative backlash dubbed an Islamic community center and mosque in New York, maybe vaguely near the ground zero of 9-11. And because they're racist and Islamophobic, they blame all of Islam for 9-11 and uh, were opposing a mosque being built in New York. Also, the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the visceral, uh, vehement response from conservatives saying that we shouldn't ever have a trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in New York because maybe New York would become a target of terrorism and that would be terrible. This is giving the terrorists exactly what they want. So the clip I'm going to play for you sort of stands in for all of that. But first, we have to go back to 2006. George Allen was a one-term senator from Virginia, and what he is most well-known for is uh, what is known as his Makaka moment. 
and it sounded like this. He was on the campaign trail. He was giving a speech to just a little group of his supporters. And then he says this, referencing the cameraman who was at the rally from his opponent's campaign. This fellow here over here with the, the yellow shirt, Makaka, or whatever his name is, he's with my opponent. He's following us around everywhere. So welcome. Let's give a welcome to Makaka here. Welcome to America and the real world of Virginia. The cameraman that Alan is referring to was of Indian ancestry. And so this caused a little bit of a stir. There's media backlash. Everyone had to figure out, well, what does that word mean anyway? It turned out it's super racist going back to the Belgian Congo when colonial whites used to call Africans macaques, implying that they had lived in the trees until the Europeans arrived. And then they would also use the term uh, sale macaque, uh, which means filthy monkey. So anyway, uh, George Allen just sort of had that in his repertoire, uh, claimed to not know the racist origin of it, didn't mean to offend with it, but uh, ultimately lost his campaign and, and it became very famous for uh, sort of losing the cam campaign for that reason. And you need to know all of that to more fully understand what the hell is going on in 2010. One of the as yet unexplained unusual things about this year's elections in particular is the absence of macaca moments. We've been talking about this over the past few days. And as we have noted over the past few days, there have been a lot of moments this year when Republican candidates for office have said embarrassing or extreme things about race. But unlike years past, those candidates this year generally haven't suffered any negative consequences for those comments or for those actions. They certainly haven't been drummed out of politics the way that other candidates have been in years past when things like this have happened. In fact, this year, quite a few candidates who have said or done really out there offensive things about race have not only won their primaries, but they stand a pretty good chance of winning their general elections as well. More interesting and more important, though, than, than any individual moments of prejudice on the campaign trail this year is the question of whether or not there's any strategic coherence here, whether this really is a sort of Southern strategy 2.0. As we've been trying to tease out this week, you know, the classic Southern strategy pioneered by the Republican Party in the 1960s and the 1970s in the South was to purposely allow your candidates to be seen as sort of bigoted, as a means of locking up the white vote by appearing prejudiced. You write off all the minority vote, but that's okay. The goal is to lock up the white vote, which is much bigger, hence the word minority. Uh, writing off the minority vote is considered a small price to pay as long as you're able to keep minority turnout relatively low and as long as you're able to lock up every available majority white vote in the process. Now, you can see the mechanics of this at work this year when you see that most of the racial incidents and comments we have seen on the campaign trail this year take, take the form of, of white candidates signaling to white voters, essentially, hey, I'm with you. I'm not with them. It's us against them. What's that guy's name? It's the senator here in West Virginia. Jay Rockefeller. And he just brought to Charleston yesterday Dr. Cho or Dr. Chow. Or Dr. Chow Ming. I don't know what his name is. Harry Reid is fighting for a program that would give preferred college tuition rates to none other than illegal aliens, using your money to pay for it, leading to a simple question. What does Harry Reid have against you? 
mostly because I think uh, we do not have a civics literacy test before people can vote in this country. People, people who could not even spell the word vote or say it in English put a committed socialist ideologue in the White House. Name is Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah, bring back the literacy tests from Jim Crow. Can you believe my opponent is siding with those menacing brown people sneaking through the fence? President Obama's energy secretary, Stephen Chu. Oh, you mean Dr. Chow Mein? The unavoidable signal with this stuff is, I do not stand with those people. I am not with the minority people. I am not with the minority people. I am not with them. I'm with you. You want to know how much I'm with you? I don't even mind offending them. I'm going to go out of my way to offend them in order to signal to you, white voter, that I am with you and I am not with them. It, it is an, it's an appeal to, to racial solidarity by white candidates speaking to white voters. We have seen it before in this country. We are now seeing it again. But the, the uglier thing that gives this kind of stuff its political punch is that you're not just making clear to the electorate that the country is divided along racial lines, that, that you as a candidate stand with them, you stand with the white folks. You're also making clear that there is an active threat against them. There's a fear component here. White people aren't just separate from minorities in the country. White people need to stand together. White people need to stand together, especially around election time, because white people are in danger. White people are facing a threat. White people are threatened. We have seen that strategy at play this year in politics in terms of how dangerous Latinos are. They're coming across the border. They're coming to get your jobs. Louisiana Senator David Vitter even ran an ad showing menacing brown people coming through a fence, presumably to get to his constituents, even though Louisiana isn't on the border. Maybe he meant the, force was, the fence was between Louisiana and Mississippi. It does start with M. Uh, the idea that they're coming to get you, that, that they're coming to get you stuff, that has been the rhetoric, even though illegal immigration is actually down in recent years. But still, the political potency is there, right? White people, be afraid of those brown people. They're coming to get you. It's not just brown people, of course. Americans have also been fed a steady diet of be afraid of black people, too. We have seen this on Fox News, in particular since Barack Obama was elected president. Whether it's the new Black Panther Party, two guys who braid their beard hair, who nobody ever heard of before Fox News made them famous, or Acorn, which Fox News still contends secretly controls the world. We call them trilateral acorn. Uh, or Shirley Sherrod or, or Van Jones. White people, be afraid of the black people. They are coming to take something from you that is rightfully yours. Beyond menacing brown and black people out to get you, though, it's worth pointing out today, because of today's news, that Fox News in particular has also focused on another target, the scary Muslims that are out to get you. That has been a Fox News specialty for a long time now. If you're a 20 to 30 year old is, uh, Islamic male, even if you have no evil intentions, expect to be delayed. We have to we have to profile. It's time to have a Muslims checkpoint line in America's airports no. and have Muslims be scrutinized. Yeah. You better believe it. It's you know, time. Uh, there's no question there is a Muslim problem in the world. 
the truth is that Muslims tend to be more violent than Christians. Do you think it's time for the military to have special debriefings of uh, Muslim army uh, civilian uh, officers? The other day, I listed case after case of Muslim soldiers with attitude, is what I've called them over the years, who've been able to uh, infiltrate the, themselves and insinuate themselves in the armed forces, despite all sorts of warning signs about their hatred for America. Muslim day! Uh, at Six Flags. I can't imagine that in 1948 they would have had Japanese Day at the water park on December 8th. Stop with the government Muslim outreach programs. Okay? I'm tired of it. While the president was hosting an iftar dinner for Ramadan, by the way, my apologies. I didn't even know Ramadan was happening, uh, so I didn't get you a present. I'm sorry. Uh, but I am, I know it's late, but I'm going to put up my Ramadan tree after the program tonight. Profile Muslims between the ages of 16 and 45. That should be done automatically by professionals. These names, uh, Muhammad and Yusuf, don't they sound kind of familiar? We have to be able to profile. And I'm sorry if I see two guys that look like Abadabadu and Abadabada, I'm going to pull them over. I want to find out what you're doing. If you are an 18 to 28 year old Muslim man, then you should be strip searched. Fox News hosts and contributors there. Be afraid, America. Be afraid. And don't forget to vote. Boo! And for our last regular clip of the show for 2010, that'd be nice to wrap up this way. I think of 2009, Obama's first year in office, as the year when progressives immediately started getting frustrated with him, disappointed with him. 2010, maybe a few more people were starting to wake up, like treatment of the banks and how they were being uh, coddled quite a bit was starting to seep into more mainstream. But 2010 was also the year that Obama himself sort of began to admit, oh yeah, those expectations you had, mm, maybe we need to tone those down. And other than that, the only context you need is, does anyone remember Will I Am? If not, uh, you know, take a take a stroll down memory lane and and go find Will I Am's "Yes We Can" song. President Obama went on a uh, late night television show this week to be interviewed to connect with the youthful audience, and he was uh, asked by the host whether uh, he would campaign again with the same hopeful rhetoric that he did in uh, 2008. And uh, President Obama replied, I, I, I would say, yes, I can, but... And then the audience erupted in laughter, and then he finished, it's not going to happen overnight. So um didn't take long for a well-known hip-hop artist, Well, I Never, to mash that up. Offering the people of this nation for all hope. But here's what I think is fair that over the last two years, in an emergency situation, uh, our basic attitude was we got to get some things done. But in order to do that, 
basically worked with the process as opposed to transform the process. And, and there's no doubt that that frustrated folks. But yes, we can. But yes, we can. But yes, we can. But yes, we can. But people are frustrated. You know, people, a lot of folks are hurting out there still. And you know, in that environment, I think that they're hoping that. Uh, we, we can, can do, do a little, little bit, bit better, better uh, here in Washington than we've been doing. But yes, we can. But yes, we can. But yes, we can. But yes, we can. But 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 but. And now we're just going to put the finishing touches on this episode with some personal notes. Number one, 2010 was the year of the birth of the voicemail line. The voicemail line has been going on for 10 years now. We take voicemails at 202-999-3991. And, and a few people, I think, I think Dave from Olympia, you know, maybe, maybe one or two others have been calling in pretty much since, since then. Secondly, though, it was also a big year for me personally. 2010 was the year that this show became my job. But boy, did I find something interesting when I heard myself talking about it 10 years ago. Listen to me first talking about my very last day of my former job. Today is uh, it's Tuesday, February 16th, 2010. And so I'm sitting here, it's about 8 o'clock at night as I'm talking to you, and now I'm sitting here at the end of the day getting ready to, to put the final touches on this show and put it out after having worked a full 8-hour shift, the very last full 8-hour shift of my regular, quote-unquote, real job, going to the office at 9.30, working for 8 hours, sitting at a desk, working at a computer... Uh, it just so happens I was making a video today. That was my, my final task. And then having to, you know, after working a full day, come home and work on the podcast. Now, this is the sort of schedule that I've had on such a regular basis for such a long time where, you know, I've had a couple of days a week where I've been able to do podcasting, uh, you know, two or three days a week that I've had to go into the office. But during those two or three days, I've almost always had to come home and do some amount of podcasting work, which has, you know, led me into the schedule of regularly working 12 or 13 hours in any given day uh, of the week. So I'm sitting here on the very last day of its kind, the very last day that I would have to work these two totally separate, disconnected shifts that combine to, you know, a, a way more than what is healthy work schedule. Okay, so apparently that that's the schedule I had, and as you heard me say, I've had it for a while. You know, I'm working these two jobs, I'm working as hard as I can, to just, you know, I'm like working a regular job to survive. That was when I was working at the Chesapeake Climate Action Network as a climate activist, and, you know, so that that's like the paycheck that's paying the bills. 
and at the same time, I'm working really hard trying to make this show a job. So I'm, I'm working on, you know, throwing everything at the wall that I can think of to, to raise money and starting the membership program and, you know, everything else. But listen to what I said, you know, a couple of weeks before that last day. It's like, you, you just heard how bad my schedule was. Listen to what I had already planned for myself the moment my regular job was going to end. So now, as you may recall, at the either the very beginning of this month or the end of last month, I finally made the announcement that my quote-unquote real job would be coming to an end in the middle of February. So thanks entirely to the members and donors of this podcast, I'm going to be able to take on the show as basically a full-time job. And so now, as I am so obviously dependent on you, the listeners, for my own well-being through uh, people signing up for memberships or, or sending donations to the show... I'm going to do my absolute best to make the show as good as it can be. So I'm happy to say now that beginning in March, you know, I need some time to get ready, but beginning in March, I will be increasing the production of the show from eight shows a month to 10. So every other week, there will be three episodes in a given week instead of just two for every week. You get the idea. So there are, there are a lot of problems with that. First of all, I conflated, I want to make the show as good as possible, and I conflated that with, I'm going to put out more. That's not the same thing. Better doesn't necessarily mean more, but at the time, I definitely thought it did. And secondly, no wonder I have burned out more than once in the last 10 years and had to dial back my production schedule time after time. You know, we've been talking recently about how for the last 10 years, I haven't been taking vacation except for like, you know, maybe a long weekend every now and then, and then the, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and that was pretty much it. I wasn't giving myself enough vacation. And on top of that, I mean, like, no wonder, look, look at this working mindset I had 10 years ago. Of course, I set myself up for burnout and some, some version of failure. Of course, I was going to set myself up with these unreasonably high expectations only to then I feel like a failure. That's really what it was. I, I set myself up to feel like a failure when I inevitably had to dial back the production schedule over time. And, uh, so I just found that interesting, like, Oh, okay. I could have seen that writing on the wall a long time ago because look at that, uh, you know, look at that mindset I had as a, you know, as a person who believes in labor rights, Boy, progressives sure aren't good at giving ourselves enough time off when when we're doing work that we think is important. I mean, sure, maybe we're right, but uh, you know, put your own mask on before uh, helping someone else. And now, finally, one one very last uh, clip for you uh, again of me talking. This was, I think, the most interesting thing I heard myself say ten years ago. This is coming right at the very tail end, or right after. Healthcare, Obamacare had been passed. So this is what I had to say about it. I don't know about you, but I am thrilled to be, uh, you know, not quite done, but uh, really, really over the hump about talking about healthcare. You know, obviously there's there's going to be more to to say about it in in the coming weeks and months and and beyond. But uh, but it's great to kind of be past that because. I was looking, I was taking a little bit of a long view on the show, uh, you know, looking out and, and seeing what's coming up. And without 
healthcare dominating the national conversation, I can now foresee uh, you know, s- such a range of shows coming up. I mean, and, and, and this may span almost the entire spectrum. But, I, you know, so I, I can see in, in the coming weeks shows on economics, education, climate change, foreign policy, media, religion, gay rights, and then, of course, some more sprinkled in about healthcare. And, you know, that, that, that might be the entire range uh, of topics this show generally covers. You know, if I, if I missed any, uh, let me know. Okay. So the point being that healthcare had sucked all the oxygen out of the room. I put out so many episodes on healthcare that it wasn't leaving room for me to do these other topics that I cared a lot about, but just felt like, they're, they didn't have the same urgency as healthcare reform passage, and so I wasn't doing these shows on it. But did you hear the most interesting thing I said? It's what I didn't say. Did you notice any topics missing in that list? You know, I mean, sure, some of the topics I do these days are are very niche. They're very specific. I was, you know, listing just the really broad topics. So, you know, it didn't sound like very many. Whereas today I could say, you know, I've done, you know, dozens and dozens of different kinds of topics because I get so, so sort of niche and nuanced. Uh, racism, sexism, anyone? <laughs> no mention. And I remember that being the case. I remember looking back to 2010 and thinking, Wow, back then, I didn't do any topics on racism or sexism at all. And I know that because 2011, five years into doing the show, was the first time I started broaching the topic of sexism or racism. And the word of warning for you is, this is what happens when you put straight white guys, as well-meaning as they may be, in charge of media organizations, they are going to have blind spots so big that you can't even believe that they didn't realize that talking about sexism and racism was like a worthwhile thing. And I can vouch for the fact that I did not realize that those were topics that I should be covering on a regular basis. I was very young. I was very naive. I was very uninformed. I was doing the best I could, and I I hope I have made amends over the years, but the fact that sexism and racism, I, I see them now as two of the biggest pillars of structures of power that our country rests on. Like, they're so fundamental to everything in the country and the dynamics of how so much of it works that to be blind to it before is almost unbelievable. But I can tell you with absolute honesty that I actually was blind to it. I did not realize it was a contemporary issue that needed to be dealt with today, not just something that happened before. And it was very much only with the help of very nice, but very firm listeners writing in, leaving voicemails, and guiding me onto a better path, did I begin the multi-year process of learning basically from zero about 
the aspects of structural racism and sexism and integrating those into my view of the world. It was only with the help of listeners that that happened. So, so the lesson is be wary of white guys in charge of media outlets and also don't give up on every white guy who doesn't know about this stuff. Uh, if you have the time, take a moment to encourage them in a better direction. That is going to be it for today. It's been a big one. I know 2010 was a big year. I have volunteers to thank. Uh, Joel, who works on the show regularly, helped with the initial research, uh, along with a, a list of volunteers who were just interested in helping, uh, most of which are, are famous from their voicemails. So thanks to Jonathan R., Alan from Connecticut, Aaron from Philly, Dave from Olympia, Craig from Ohio, and Laura from Alameda. That is going to be it for today's episode and for the year 2010. I'm predicting it's going to be a little bit of a whiplash trying to readjust my mind to the, the modern day. I, I have a feeling like uh, some things have been going on while I've had my focus elsewhere. So as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Notice the total lack of ads in today's show. Hint, hint. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.